Ready graphics? Ready theme? Hi, I'm Jesse Mullins. And I'm Lauren Milberger. And this is FYI, the Murphy Brown Podcast. Murphy is the product of two very self-absorbed people. Oh, yes. Yes. And then what I wrote was, side splat. Check his pockets for jewelry. Frank's toupee is on point. And on today's episode, we'll be talking about season one, episode 15, Mama Said. Hello. Hello, I'm Lauren. I'm Jesse, And welcome to the Murphy Brown Podcast. Yes, we are back after an exciting two weeks with Mr. Russ Woody. It was lovely. It was lovely. He is hilarious and insightful. We quite enjoyed it. Yes, we hope you enjoyed it as well. Indeed. Uh, but today we have a jam-packed episode. We do. We have a lot to say about this episode. It's, if you've looked on the website, it's my favorite episode of the season. Oh, that's right. Yes, partially and mostly because of the illustrious guest star that we will talk about. Yes. Uh, this episode uh, was directed by Barnett Kelman. Oh, funny about that. Yeah, isn't it? Indeed. Yeah. Uh, written by series creator Diane English. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it aired March 6th, 1989. So let's go right into the episode then. Yes. So we open on the cutest baby Murphy this the world has ever seen. Like 11-year-old Murphy, yeah, though. but she's still a baby Murphy. Okay. I'm sorry. If you're under, like... I, I call everything a baby or okay. a puppy. Mm-hmm. Um, so she is in rolled up jeans, and I was trying to see what's on like the sweater sweatshirt that she's yeah, wearing. Yeah, I it can't looks like tell. A cowboy, I think so. That would be in in the fifties, and it's a particularly tomboyish outfit. Yes, I would say is on purpose. Point. Yes, um, possibly bobby socks underneath there, but little white socks that we see stepping themselves into some nude pumps that are clearly for someone larger than her. And then we see her pulling on a woman's coral lace dress going up with those lovely puffed accents all over it. Um, She's throwing on some pearls. The entire time a dog is watching her as she's doing this. By the way, so at first I went, oh, it's Butterscotch. Mm -hmm. Except Butterscotch is a golden retriever. Is that not a golden retriever? Oh, that's... Is it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think the confusion sometimes between a golden retriever and a yellow lab are is like coat length, but okay. that looks like it could be a golden retriever. Not all of them have the long silky coat. Gotcha. All the time. So I assumed it was butterscotch. Okay. And uh, she throws what I think is maybe a shawl or may- it might just be a blanket that goes with the dress in the same way that I used to use yeah. towels to look like I had I mean, long, she is in her hair. bedroom because of the canopy bed. Yes. That's made me think it's not her mother's bedroom. Yes. It's hers. So I assume that she's doing the do what you will to create yourself into this fabulous woman. Mm-hmm. And she throws on a fancy little white cap and then immediately decides, no, that's not right, and puts on a cap. And right at the end of, so we'll talk about the song in a moment, but yeah. she ends this clip by kind of pointing at herself in the mirror and mouthing along with the final words of with you. Yes, she's lip syncing as opposed to mm-hmm. singing. Yes. And and I enjoy that because that's what I would do. I was not someone who sang along with music like Murphy. I would mm-hmm. lip sync all the time. Oh, no. I, I laid down my own track with the artist at the same time. Uh, no, this whole section, it always feels new to me because I did not see season one until a first run syndication. Mm-hmm. And this section is always cut. Interesting. I so, love it so much. I know. Well, here's the problem with syndication mm-hmm. is that it, they always cut sections out for more commercials. Yes, and they cut out what is not plot necessary. Exactly. And so this didn't have to do with plot. And so but it did. It does. So I did not see this until at least I guess 2005, which is crazy. Really? It's when the DVD came out. Oh, I guess. Huh. I had heard about the scene mm-hmm. because it's in the Murphy Brown book when mm-hmm. they sort of summarize all the episodes. Mm-hmm. But um, 
I I had never seen it. It's so delightful. And I just, as we'll talk about our mothers, um, it's one of those, like, the way that you look up to your mother and idolize your mother and yeah. you take on their various accoutrements that it's, it's so iconic of a, a young girl looking at her mom, especially if her mom is different from her. Yeah, I wanted way. to change my name to Amy, which is my mom's name Aww. when I was very, very young. And, and this scene also reminds me because my grandmother had a costume box mm-hmm. of like old clothes and stuff for us to like dress up in. I got, I remember being very, very sad when I outgrew my grandmother's shoe size. Because my grandma was either a six or a six and a half, and mm-hmm. I went to eight very Aww. quickly. Um, so anyway, the yeah. song that so the she song is. playing is Earth Angel, mm-hmm. which is uh, a quintessential '50s song. Though you may remember it from Back to the Future. That's how I know That's it. That's how I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah. But something that I didn't know about this song, which is sometimes referred to as Earth Angel (parentheses Will You Be Mine), mm-hmm. it's a doo-wop group for the Penguins. It's from 19. 19- 54 on the uh, Dutone label. This is one of the only demo songs to reach number one. Isn't that cool? It's super cool. It's so neat. It was, so it was very unexpected. It was filmed in a garage in South Los Angeles. It was the first independent label to reach or appear on the Billboard's national pop charts, let alone to be the original demo. And because it was recorded in a garage... Every time the neighbor's dog barked, they had to start over. I don't know what that's like, cats. My cats are constantly pushing things off. Uh, And it's considered, like I said, a staple of the 1950s, a definitive doo-wop song. It is one of the 50 recordings chosen by the Library of Congress to be added to the National Recording Registry. And that was actually in 2005, speaking of 2005. Hey-oh. Yeah. Back to Murphy. So, yes. So, we end with young Murphy making a little finger gun, pointing at herself, finishing with mouthing with you. And then we immediately cut to the elevator door opening and there's 40-year-old Murphy standing in a cap, singing. Now she's now she's using her voice, mm-hmm. uh, reading a newspaper. Uh, what I love is she's got the ponytail through the cap, mm-hmm. which is how I styled my hair as a child. And I don't know if that trend became popular because of shows like this, but being a tomboy with long hair... I also would make the mistake of using the cap as a ponytail holder. And so my hair was constantly falling out and my mom would get so annoyed with me. But I just thought that that was the way you held your hair back. I have something about that. You do? Yes, because Mm. uh, Candace talks about that in her biography, her Mm. second biography, A Fine Romance, where she mentions, I remember reading this and being quite surprised, is that she wanted to have a high ponytail in a baseball hat and they couldn't find, she she said they couldn't find anything with a hole in the back at all. Which is how the old ones used to look. Yeah, I was going to say high ponytail is different than the normal hole in the back. Sure, but she said there was no hole at all. Hmm. So what they ended up having to do is cut a hole in the back for her ponytail to come out. And Candace swears Mm -hmm. that after that, she then saw hats in the store that had holes in the back. I mean, that's how I always wore baseball caps as a kid. And yeah, that's fascinating that they couldn't find it. I could have sworn that there were baseball caps with holes in them before then, but I wonder if it's the position of the ponytail that was the problem. Yeah, so I don't know when the whole plastic with the little, you know, mm-hmm. corn things in the back that gave you yeah. the whole started. But that's what Candace said in her biography. Indeed. So that's kind of cool. What I like is that somehow this is a glamorous look. Yes. It's a, it's a very neutral color palette. She looks very, like, she, she kind of reminds me of Frank, weirdly, in this outfit. Well, um, also in her biography, Candace talks about that very often for uh, Murphy's sort of downtime, she would go into the men's wardrobe. Mm-hmm. And that's where she picked this out. Mm-hmm. So she is looking at this 
this trade edition of something and uh, singing to herself the lines being, I said shotgun, shoot him for he runs now. Right as she notices that everyone else is standing there watching her sing in the elevator. Shotgun, by the way, was uh, Junior Walker in the All-Stars. And it was released February 13th, 1965. And it is a Hitsville, USA Motown song. Also, I paused it at one point mm-hmm. to look at the outfit. And I noticed that um, on the newspaper, it says Zenith Computers on sale for five ninety nine ninety nine. Oh, it hurts. <laughs> That is a different time. Yeah, this felt very sort of Catherine Hepburny to me. It is. It's. I love it. It's like the woman in slacks mm-hmm. with the sass, which makes sense considering who's about to come in. And it's kind of what she was wearing in the last episode without yes. the bomber jacket. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I was like, hey, that's what she was wearing. Yep. Something else really interesting too from Candace's biography is she talks about that she wanted every outfit to be an event. I mean, they are. Yeah. They no, are. they totally Absolutely. are. Yeah. So. Once she sees everyone watching her, she said, yes, I'm back. She says it was a great trip. She interviewed Margaret Thatcher. She sat next to Smokey Robinson on the plane. She pulls out a um, piece of bread and says, look, his dinner roll. She triumphantly walks back to her office, and there sitting at the secretary's desk is a crash test dummy who is locked into place. She looks at it. Actually, you can see like there's an approving, and she turns to says, very funny. And then the elevator opens again. And what I have in all caps is, oh my God, Colleen Dewhurst. Outfit forever. Uh, I, I wrote down, Colleen Dewhurst walks off the elevator. And it is with that emphatic walk that we see her. She is in a, her, uh, this outfit. She it's, reminds me of my grandmother. It's amazing. And yet also the most fashionable person I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. So she's in a teal hat with a brooch upon it. Her, her dress underneath that we see later is a matching teal color. And then I wonder, okay, so I have mm-hmm. a lifelong obsession with navy as a neutral. Okay. And I wonder if Avery Mur- Brown did this to me. I almost said Avery Murphy. If Avery Brown did this to me because she's in this navy slash maybe indigo coat with a patterned fashion scarf on the outside that's clearly only there to be seen and mm-hmm. not useful in any way. Absolutely. And navy gloves and a navy purse. And... It's, she's just stunning. When I talk later about the great, late Colleen Dewhurst, we'll talk about the way that people described her mm-hmm. in print. But it, it, she's she's stunning. There aren't words for the way she captures your attention in this. Yeah. And then she proceeds to say, may I have everyone's attention, please? I'm looking for Murphy Brown. Someone tell me where she is. And something really interesting, we're going to uh, pepper through this uh, mm-hmm. direct quotes from Colleen from her biography mm-hmm. about working on this episode. And something she wrote was, so she says, I felt nervous and numb as I stood behind the closed door of the elevator and can scarcely remember listening to the actors on set, waiting for the line that would cue the elevator doors. Suddenly they slid open and I stepped forward into the newsroom, speaking my first lines as Avery Brown. The audience laughed as if right on cue and immediately I relaxed, loving it all. So she's... So something we're also talking about as well when we get to the end is much like Avery Brown's insecurities, Mm -hmm. so did Colleen Dewhurst, thinking this great, amazing, Tony-winning actress Mm -hmm. is a human being... Well, and also this is, she's a theater actress, Colleen Dewhurst, and that reaction to the audience laughed and I, her locking into place with that, that's such a theater actor's mm-hmm. thing. It's like, okay, the audience is with me. Yeah. And I see that a lot when people have trouble transitioning because luckily she was with a live studio audience, but yeah. a lot of people without that, that partnership that you have with a live audience, it doesn't feel right. 
Yeah, well, something that Diane asked the cast to do was she said, someone mess up. Mm-hmm. Someone do something so that she can relax and see that she can mess up, that mm-hmm. it's not a theater piece, yep. and not to be so nervous. And Candace was the first person to pretend to mess up. Mm-hmm. That's so sweet. Yeah. Uh, and then we have, this is one of my favorite qualities within this, that just, it says a lot about their relationship, is the fact that Murphy always calls her mother. Yes! She never calls her mom. It, like, there's, it's always mother, which is so respectful and distant. I think I think I agree, and I and I love that choice. But I think it's also a generational thing. Well, that's what I. That's yeah. what I, there was. There's a generational yeah. quality that I was going m- to say that comes m- from. That. My mother would call my grandmother mother, not all the time like Murphy does, but but she would. And I remember it was so jarring to me, because I was like, oh, that's very formal. But I don't think they're formal, but yeah, it's like they're they're the, the same age, my grandmother and and you know our grandmothers and our parents as Murphy and her mother. And it's such a very specific choice. There are lots of very specific choices throughout here that are particular to this generation. That was the continuation of my thought, was that it's generational. So when Murphy realizes who is there, we hear mother, Murphy. And then what I wrote was side splat, where they go in and instead of hugging or face air kissing, they just kind of lean in and press their sides and sides of faces next to each other in this Half almost hug, half almost face kiss, and they're apart as quickly as possible. Yeah, I wrote, they do a side head white woman with money kiss. Side splat. <laughs> I like yours better. And Murphy says, this is a surprise, and together they both say, big big surprise. And you immediately see that this is not something they are good at. This is not a welcome surprise, necessarily. This is stressful. Mm-hmm. And neither of them know how to handle this. And she starts asking her, why are you here? Is it some new gallery, a fundraising event? And Avery says, do I need an excuse? I just want to spend a little time, cleared my schedule. And that she cleared her schedule so she can stay as long as she likes. And Murphy's response is, isn't that wonderful? And at that moment, the boys walk in. And she says, Frank, Jim, come here, quickly. And this is the thing that kind of blew my mind is the fact that They've known each other so long, and they've never met her mother. Yes. And they don't know that her mother is divorced. Like, they don't know that Mr. Brown is not in the picture here, Mm -hmm. and they have never met this woman. And while I understand adults, like our parents don't normally come to town for playdates and visits and so on, the fact that they've known her that long and and that Avery has never, it really lands on that Avery has never made a visit. Yes. Now, I, I like to think that maybe Frank knew that Murphy's parents were divorced. I feel like Frank might. Yeah, but I could see maybe Jim didn't. Mm-hmm. It's not really. It's like a personal thing mm-hmm. they might talk about. Or he, maybe he forgot. Yeah. It's not like a huge thing that they discuss. Or they just don't talk about. Yeah, but it's, 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 very, it's very telling of the relationship. Mm-hmm. I think also in situations like this, when we first meet a parent, it, it makes more sense in the narrative for everyone to meet at the same time mm-hmm. because the audience is meeting them. Mm-hmm. You know? But even the fact that... You know, we know the history with Frank and that thing. Like, I felt like Frank would know at least or know of. And yeah. The fact that, and I know Frank, if anybody is teasing the most, but everyone says something along the lines of, I never saw you having a mother. And Frank says, wow, Murph, you've got a mother. I love that. Which I love that in joke. Yeah. I take more of Frank saying that jokingly than anybody else. But there's a lot of just like, huh, never considered you having been raised by a woman. And... Yeah, that she was but like this woman raised, sure. raised by wolves, you know, yeah. out, out in the woods just, somewhere. Just a, a constantly smoking cigar raised her. 
in a <laughs> something also that uh, the little uh, sort of maybe Freudian or slip up when mm-hmm. you called her Avery Murphy. Mm-hmm. That's something I alluded to in a previous episode that I was saving for this mm-hmm. is something I thought of recently. So it's not something not a headcanon from my childhood mm-hmm. at all was I really think that Murphy is Avery's maiden name. Oh, yeah. I really I really have considered that. It, it seems to make total because sense. Because it is an unusual first name. Yeah. Frank says, Mrs. Brown, nice to meet you. Wow, Murphy got a mother. Uh, Frank, or Jim has the, lovely to meet you. I hope you enjoy your stay in the nation's capital. Be sure to visit the Treasury Building. They have a million dollars on display. I thought of you when he said that. <laughs> it made me so happy. Because also there's this, this certain amount of, and we'll see in a moment, a certain amount of approval in her eyes at this, this greeting. Mm-hmm. It's very nice for her. I also have to say, I, I do love the fact, and it becomes sort of a running joke, and they do this a lot in sitcoms, where you're you're an adult, and your parent comes to your job, and everyone acts like they're the teacher. Yes. Like, oh, yeah, we're about to get to the teacher. Oh, okay, go ahead. Yeah. So, Miles enters, and they're like, Miles, meet Murphy's mother. And Miles does, I can't even pretend to read it this way, That's but okay. his, his wow voice, yeah, which I cannot do his wow voice, but the way he says wow, I put about five W's at the end of it. And then he proceeds to say, let me just say, she's doing great here at FYI. She has a very good attitude, and she's learning to work well with others. And immediately was like, giving the report card. I love it so much. I mean, this is, especially in this episode, they really lean into talking down to Murphy like a child and her leaning into being very childlike. Jim asks, where is Mr. Brown? And Avery turns around and says, in Chicago with a woman half his age. And then she reveals she's been divorced for 15 years. I got the house and a lot of money. He got his underwear and the asphalt on the driveway. I love this line so much, and I, I think half of it is just her delivery. Oh, so good. It's very Catherine Hepburn. Yes. That kind of old school delivery. She knows she's being witty oh. and fabulous when she, she says it. Oh, yeah. She knows she's like, I won. Yes. It's the it's the Ivanka Trump, don't get mad, get everything mm-hmm. kind of thing. It's just like, I did it. Then she does my favorite thing of asking, saying, Mr. Dial, are you married? Mm-hmm. You're bright and a good height. And he says, yes, I am. She goes, well, in another life. Which I was like, Avery, this is why I love you, because you love Jim. My second favorite moment. So then she, then Miles offers himself, essentially. And she says, young man, have you ever heard the expression, can't pound a nail with a tack hammer? This whole <laughs> section just sets Avery up Oh, so well. It's And it's all, as we have said, telling by doing it's we learn so much about who she is by how she interacts with each individual mm-hmm. oddly enough i just want to call out the fact that we barely see her interact with corky we do not see her actually have a conversation good point with the other type of female in the area we see her with murphy we do not corky d- isn't even in the scene she doesn't show up until later in the mm-hmm. bullpen and even then corky says something to her she kind of looks at her and that's it we do hmm. not see avery interact I with another thought woman. about that huh and that actually kind of bugs me because I want to see how she would have reacted to a stereotypical female. Yeah, I don't think very well. And, and I wanted to see them. Like, is this where Murphy learned to, like, see other women as competition or this isn't the right kind of woman? Or, like, we, I wanted to see it happen. And it didn't. I'm sorry. I wonder if it was cut. I don't know. Anyway. So she proceeds to say, oh, sure, we'll hang out and so on. And sends her into her office, which we never go into Murphy's office. Mm-hmm. But she then goes to get coffee with the guys right before she has to head back in and is saying that her mother isn't fooling her for a minute, that there's no way she just had time and decided to drop by. Because for them, for their separate list of things they would choose for joy, visiting each other would be tied with appendectomy. I love the way that she says that word, by the way. Appendectomy? She says it, yeah, it's very (laughs) funny. So 
Yes, then we find ourselves cut to later in Murphy's townhouse. Real quick, though, I do have to point out, there's a look that Avery gives the crash test dummy. Yes, I forgot about that. Which is really great. Yes. And I I, I think that there's a similar, I could be wrong, but I think there's a similar one in her last episode, too, where it's like, that's not funny. Oh, and then we also have, really, the scene ends, too, with Miles. Like, he's he's so embarrassed and bemoans, you know, like, I really wanted to marry her. Yeah, I know. He's so <laughs> embarrassed. He's just so embarrassed that he wouldn't be chosen. Yeah. But but also that, like, you know, it's like, I was, was just making a joke. She didn't have to do that. Make me shut small. Me down. Yeah. Um, so we, we cut to uh, Murphy's townhouse. And uh, Murphy and Avery come in, and and Murphy says, you know, you could have just sent the steak back, Mother. You didn't have to go into the kitchen and make him eat it. I just, I've worked in restaurants for a really long time, and that just makes me really happy. To which Avery says, another really great line in this episode is, Jesse's waiting and ready. I'm waiting and ready. (laughs) (laughs) You can't let people get away with shoddy service. It starts with overcooked meat and ends with President Quayle. Ding. No, this line, apparently, according to Colleen's book, mm-hmm. was handed to her during the Friday run-through. That's not surprising. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously, we've alluded to this a lot, but um, we're now getting to the point where every episode has a Dan Quayle joke. Oh, yeah. Which, oh, yeah. you know, the the behind the scenes, the writers, you know, the producers, they think mm-hmm. that maybe, you know, Dan Quayle started to get a little hurt by that. It, it was weird. It's like he didn't like it much. So Avery comes in, and she just takes off her coat. She just walks out of it. She just walks out with her arms back, and Murphy's just left to catch it. Yeah, it's it, the setup that this is Murphy's mother is so <laughs> perfect. I just, I found myself, as I was watching it, I rewound to just watch. She walks forward with her chest, like she's like the mermaid on the prow of a ship. She just, like, walks right out of it. Murphy is the product of two very self-absorbed people. Oh, yes. Yes. Now, something very interesting is that originally, Diane saw Murphy as sort of an army brat. Mm-hmm. And according to the big Murphy Brown book that we like to use, when it was uh, spoken to Candace, Barnett claims that she winced. And Candace goes, I didn't wince, but I wasn't happy with it. And so this is sort of a combination of, uh, of a discussion. You know, mm-hmm. the, the background that Murphy comes from is really based on Candace's ideas, my yeah. understanding. Philadelphia, rich family. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then eventually we'll find out that Avery, um, you know, didn't go to school to help her husband go through school, mm-hmm. which can only mean, which we'll get to in a moment, I think, that means that when she divorced Bill, she went back to school. Yeah, I think so. You can't be a curator exactly. without going to school. Yep. So that's, she's a really awesome woman, yeah, Avery Yeah, she's Brown. cool. She, yeah. She's cool. She loves what she did. she's done with the townhouse. She hates the painting over the mantle. She doesn't understand why Murphy gravitates to flowers. <laughs> florals. Uh, florals. Sorry, florals. <laughs> which is great because there's, of course, the Warhol behind. Yep. And she goes, I like that painting. And Avery goes, you just think you do. <laughs> Makes me so happy. I was like, oh, Avery. Yeah. She'll send her something else when she gets home. Mm-hmm. Um, she wants to know if they should play poker. I kind of love that they say poker because poker generally tends to be associated as a male pastime. Yeah, I would, you would think, like, do you want to sit down and play cards? Yeah. But no, it was, you want to play poker? We play poker. Or they could find another place for that couch. <laughs> <laughs> she goes straight to work. And what's funny is, I what I like about what you said is she walks in and be like, oh, I love what you've done with the... Play. Like, she starts off being very, like, complimentary and immediately dives into, but if we just move this and we just do this thing, and she's immediately picking it apart in, in a way we classically attribute to moms in town. 
Yeah. Oh, my, my, this is sort of reminds me a little bit of my mother um, was helping me out. I had to have this uh, important package delivered mm-hmm. and they could only deliver it while I was at work. So my mother came and just hung out in my apartment for me. And I said, don't clean my room. <laughs> <laughs> and I came home and she cleaned my room. I, I have to say, I got to give kudos to Mama Mullins. She would not clean my room. She would hang out. She would pet my cats she would read she would do exactly as i had asked her but as she left i bet you anything she'd say you should probably clean your room that's nice yeah. i tried to dissuade her by telling her that certain things were out that she didn't maybe want to see mm-hmm. but she went in there anyway hey moms yeah murphy wants to go to bed but um avery wants to know why um they can just stay up and have hot cocoa you know it's tradition and there's this sort of lovely change in avery's voice when she starts talking so about the wistful. tradition it's very wistful you know she's in thinking a lot about it lately, how Eloise, who I assume is her housekeeper, um, would bring um, them cocoa and praline cookies on a silver tray, you know, one for her and one for Murphy. And then Murphy would sit on her mother's lap and they'd listen to the Nutcracker Suite. To which Murphy is convinced this means her mother is dying. I mean, I, t- I 100% I would, understand. I would think so, too. And I love the way that Candace plays it. She goes, yeah. oh, no, you're dying. I wouldn't That's all what caps. it is. And she just sort of, like, you know, runs around the, the, the couch and sits next to her. And she's sorry about everything. You know, she didn't send a Christmas card. But you, you know, know how the lines are. She couldn't get a stamp because of the lines. <laughs> it's it's great. And, and Avery goes, for God's sakes, do I look like I'm dying? And the way that Murphy nods her head no is like a child. Yeah. It's really, it's it's really very sweet. Again, reverting back to sort of being this child when you're with your mother. And it's so interesting watching this now because at the time when I first saw this, I was maybe what, like 14. Mm-hmm. And it's an, an older parent relationship. Yeah. And now that I'm... An adult. It's such a different experience watching this episode. Murphy's my peer now. Mm-hmm. When we talk about having mothers who are reaching the age where they're becoming grandmothers and so on, mm-hmm. you do start worrying that the phone call is going to be finished with something. But like, oh, and then, you know, we went to the doctor and there's this thing. Like, you are constantly worried about that. Yeah. And as somebody who has lost a parent already in my life, that is the, I don't want a text of, hey, let t- call me when you have a minute. That's the fear. And it, and it is what you go to, especially if you have a a more formal relationship with your parent and not one that's as communicative or so on. So the second they start opening up to you, you're like, oh God, this is bad. This is bad. Yeah. So um, very quickly before we go into Eldon, Mm -hmm. I wanted to talk a little bit about, so Colleen Dewhurst won two Emmys, the guest star category Mm -hmm. uh, for Avery Brown out of four of her two Emmys. And I was obsessed with this this category. The guest star category? Yes. And and I had also made myself believe that I used to watch the category on the broadcast. And it was never on the broadcast. <laughs> it was never on the broadcast. <laughs> and I had... It's funny how you twist memories in your head. So mm-hmm. I guess I would just read about it. And I loved this category because... It used to be really about sort of the stalwart actors, the character mm-hmm. actors, uh, your favorite people who'd show up on shows, at least for me, who maybe you didn't know their names. I knew their names. Now, it it can be like that, but it's, the guest star category tends to be a lot of celebrities. Yeah. Oh, you know, yeah. It's, which it's, is still worth it. Yeah. It, uh, sometimes it does fall prey to stunt casting. Yeah. But this was especially, this was a time period where it was, you know, like theater actors that exactly. you could carry a role. So I loved this category, and I was quite obsessed with it. And I decided that I wanted to be a professional guest actor. Amazing. Because I didn't understand that there was money in being a series regular. This was what I wanted. And 
And I would see Jay Thomas mm-hmm. on a lot of different shows, as well as obviously playing one of my favorite mm-hmm. characters on Murphy Brown, one of my favorite guest characters. And I told a friend of mine that I decided I wanted to be the female Jay Thomas. Amazing. And her answer was, don't you want to be successful? Oh, it's so funny, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just, oh, oh, man. Don't you want to be successful? He had two Emmys by that. Yeah. I was like, I what? Think he's doing all right. I think he's doing okay. Yeah. But and that was it. Is relative. So we have so much to talk about. I'm just going to save most of the history of the guest star category because it's really fascinating for when we have more time. So one of the things they asked Colleen Dewhurst when they offered her the role was, do you want anything? You know, thinking like special things, a drink, something flowers in your dressing room, mm-hmm. you know, a rider. Mm-hmm. And she said, no, but I would love to have a scene with that gentleman who plays the painter. Oh, thank goodness she said that. Yes, which Robert Pastorelli so said that he lived on for years. I mean, I would. Mm-hmm. Oh, that gentleman who played yeah. the painter. So Murphy sort of goes into the kitchen to try to find them some cocoa. And uh, Eldon comes out. Avery is trying to put a, a pillow in a place, and she moves things around, and then turns around and is just startled by Eldon and thinks he's an intruder. And she hits him until he falls to the ground and, and hits him with the pillow. And I just want to say I'm really glad to know that Avery Brown is the type of woman who attacks her intruder, regardless of the fact that she has a pillow. Right. <laughs> and she yells 911. <laughs> That's my favorite. <laughs> no, but here's the thing. Did they used to call it that? I don't know. We because should have asked our moms. We should have asked our moms. Oh my. It was Mother's Day. We both talked to our moms. Uh, we could have asked. Because um, <laughs> I, I love etymology, and there's this great podcast that talks about how when words are first introduced, mm-hmm. a lot of times the, oh, is it, is it the plosive? I forget what it's called. But the, the way that you accent, yeah. the word mm-hmm. is different. Mm-hmm. So you would have hot dog, and that's hot dog. Mm-hmm. And I'm fascinated with that. So I, I love w- that stuff. Oh, oh, my gosh. Oh, I should send you this podcast. Yes, it's the best. please. My, so, the linguistic anthropologist in me is. You will love, love this, this yeah. stuff. So I wonder if maybe it was originally 9-11 or she's just being different and adorable. I mean, who knows? Yeah. I, we, we'll find out. Yeah. So Eldon's glad there weren't any wire hangers on the ground. <laughs> Yay, Rami Dearest reference. <laughs> that made me so happy. It's like, Mommy Dearest. Oh, it's funny. I didn't really think it was the reference to that. I just thought because he would hurt himself. Mommy dearest, no wire hangers, man. No, I know. I I'm know that. You, it has to be. Okay. It has right. to be. He's so, again, sort of shocked that she has a mother, like everyone else, but he's happy, you know, that maybe they'll get some home cooking in the house. Oh, God. <laughs> Teach her how to pick out some produce, stuff a nice turkey. <laughs> stuff a nice turkey. And I'm doing the hand gestures because yeah. the way that he just, like, uses his hands in that scene is and so she's great. she's just rigid and blinking at him as he's saying <laughs> Check his pockets for jewelry. <laughs> but then Murphy then does a meet cute for the two of them. She does. Which will be a lifelong friendship for Avery. Yes. Is uh, Murphy tells Eldon that her mother is a curator at the National Gallery in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And we sort of learn a little clue to what Eldon's murals might look like. Yeah. So Eldon is a student of the WPA mm-hmm. and the Russian constructivism period. So I'm imagining that it looks like um, Diego Rivera and a cross between yes. um, sort of, you know, uh, uh, Soviet Union propaganda. Mm-hmm. Or his attempt to look like. Yeah. Now, something... We inter- never do get an idea of how good Eldon is. No, and I love that. I love yeah. that we never see his art. We don't know if he could have been 
anything. Murphy always seems to like them. Yeah. I mean, sometimes she's like, it's too much. But Even though this is not her, as we learn, is not yeah. her favorite type of painting. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I think that maybe in a later episode we have more time, we'll sort of delve more into mm-hmm. this. But funny enough, my cousin did murals for the WPA. Oh. My grandfather's first cousin was Ruth Gicko, although my family pronounces it Gikow. It's really Gikolf. It was changed at Ellis Island. Wow, Lauren, really? Pick one. I know, right? <laughs> And uh, she was married to Jack Levine, who is a much more famous painter in his own right. Mm-hmm. And her work is amazing. And I, there are murals. I don't even know if they're still in the city, but there's a really amazing picture, which I can share with people, cool. of her at the World's Fair demonstrating mural painting. Cool. That yeah. is cool. I think so. So Eldon says that when he saw the ceiling of Rockefeller Plaza, he wept. <laughs> Avery likes Kadinsky, which I like. Uh, Murphy likes uh, Lazitsky. Is that how you say it? Yes. Okay. I'm not a fan of um, so I'm more on the Avery Eldon side. I am too. Oh. I was like, we're going through. I was looking them up, and I was like, No, yeah, I'm with Team Yeah, Team Team Avery, Avery Eldon. Yeah, Elvery. Um, so while they're bonding, Murphy says that she excuses herself to set the kitchen on fire. And uh, something also interesting, people aren't aware. So I looked up if Avery is a contemporary art curator. She would select and interpret works of art in addition to selecting works the curator is often responsible for writing labels, catalog essays, other content supporting the exhibition, mm-hmm. which sounds a little bit like what Murphy does in a way in research, you know, mm-hmm. so you can sort of see, you know, I think that maybe Murphy probably saw her father more as like her because her father was a journalist. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if maybe them sort of, you know, breaking apart is the fact that she didn't see that she is like her mother. Mm-hmm. And she is. Yeah. Oh, is she? Yeah. So Avery decides to turn in early. She uh, shakes Eldon's hand. Um, he's, when she leaves, he says that she's a captivating woman. Mm-hmm. It's, it's also so interesting to me, sort of, you know, Avery is very much like Murphy, but of a different generation. You know, she's always very cordial, and she'll say something, but it'll have a smile attached yeah. to it. She's blunt, mm-hmm. but she's very polite some in, in a uh, formal way, yes. you might say, even if she tells the truth. Mm-hmm. Uh it's a generational, I think, sort of breakdown there. Yes. It's interesting. But Murphy does not think her mother is captivating because she will be forced to have Fabio decide whether she could have bangs or not, which is obviously something that actually happened that Murphy is yes. just like, using as an example. But Murphy feels that she's gone a long way because uh, Avery mentions before she goes to sleep that maybe they'll you know, go shopping, get a haircut tomorrow. Yes, she could use a trim. Um, trim that she will, she's changed a lot in the last couple of years and she will not let her mother make her do Something she doesn't want to do. And my favorite part about that is she finishes that line, does this like slight help tilt to the side, and then it's followed by a bing, and the elevator door opens into the FYI offices. Mm-hmm. And there she is as a mini Avery in an outfit she clearly despises. And the audience goes crazy. Goes crazy. It's, I said the hat is like a fashion fez. Yeah. It is, it is a choice. With a, a graduation tassel. Yes. Which the is tassel a, is in the front. It's a funny hat. It is a funny hat. They are burgundy twins with mm-hmm. embroidery. She has these earrings that are kind of art deco. Yeah. They're, they're definitely not Murphy. They're not Murphy. She has pearls, which are definitely not Murphy. And this embroidered top. I kept right I kept looking at it and I, I wrote, She looks so young. Yes. She looks so young. She does not look like she's 40. She looks like she's in her 30s in this. And I don't know if it was the makeup or it's the what Candace is doing with her face or the hair. Whatever it is, she looks so young. And it really sells this moment. She looks very young the whole season, I think. She does. Yeah. But like this one, I kept stopping to look at it, especially on these close-ups. There's an outtake 
from this scene. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to tell, but I do think it's the example of how Grant and Candace cannot be in scenes together where they make each other laugh. <laughs> but I also think the tassel is making the them laugh. The is the worst. I would have lost my mind over that thing. I think the tassel is like hitting her in the face yep. or something and yep. making her laugh, which then makes Grant laugh, mm -hmm. but then makes Colleen laugh. Yep. It's great. <laughs> it's great. It's great outtake. So she's trying to get her mom to go and do something during the day so that she can be a the offices were try clearly trying to get her mom out of there. And her mom mm -hmm. says, no, she's been to the Smithsonian. Maybe I'll tour the White House and see what damage the Bushes have done. I love the way she sort of rubs her fingers together. Mm -hmm. It's this sort of like classy dame thing. It I is. can't it's explain like, it. If she was a man from her time period, she'd be swilling a sifter, yeah. a snifter. Mm -hmm. of, like I'm thinking about there's a scene in Rear Window when my friends and I laugh when we watch it because there's a point where they're talking about what's going on and all of them are, are holding a drink. Anybody who's holding a drink is just casually swilling it. <laughs> And we're just like, what are they doing? They're just, they're having conversation, but everyone's just slightly turning it. That's pretty funny. And I feel like this, there's a generation, again, a generational thing of like doing something with your hand that's outstretched. And right at the moment that she's about to leave and go check out the damage from the bushes, Miles strolls in saying that he had to kill the insanity plea story um, and they have to put something in its place. And she goes, oh, a meeting. I love meetings. And he, of course, says, you're, you're welcome to sit in, Mrs. Brown. She says, I know. Which is so Avery. It's so, she's like, I know I'm welcome. Yeah, because she says it with this enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's a, that's a quintessential Avery mm -hmm. uh, moment. <laughs> I know. And then she proceeds to clap everyone over to the bullpen saying, we have a deadline to meet. She's so excited. She's, um, and he says, Miles says, everyone get your thinking caps on, which Frank slyly just walks by and says, I see Murphy's already wearing hers. Oh, Frank, I love you. I love him so much. She just glares at him. And we finally see Corky. Who in the sea of gray and brown and burgundy is this papa teal that's just sitting there. She looks good in a blue. Mostly hidden they, they, during that episode. So Miles then goes into what I call his old newscaster severity walk, where he tucks his fingers into his belt and like kind of mini John Wayne walks his way around while he's talking. <laughs> just like, what are you doing, Miles? And which, of course, Corky's about to call out. But he says, as you know, we're facing a crisis situation. 48 hours till airtime, and we have no lead story. Our backups are highly sensitive, and they have not yet cleared legal. This is due to the changing climate and standards and practices, which mandates a much more stringent code of ethics for broadcast journalism. And he's looking very serious. And Corky goes, Miles is trying to act smart because we have a visitor. <laughs> Corky, work with me. <laughs> it's so funny. And Colleen just kind of looks at her. Um, so they start offering options. Uh, Frank has an update uh, with the new Security of Defense. Miles feels like that's overdone. Frank says, oh, the Witness Protection Program? No, we still need two interviews. Murphy says, what about the Supreme Court's decision to cut back on affirmative action? And he says he doesn't think they have time for that. So then Avery pipes up saying, well, you must do a story on airport security. Correct me if I'm wrong. FAA is about to release a study on um, the new security practices within the airports. She says that she's an acquaintance of a member, of the wife of the member of the FAA, um, and she could put in a call if, if needed. And Miles is like, I love it. He runs over to her. They're going to make this happen. And Murphy's like, but what if I don't want to do a report on airport security? What if I want to do affirmative action? And this is when Murphy starts getting really juvenile in the way mm -hmm. she's talking. And it's amazing because... She does that little, like, but what if I don't want to do it? And I want to do mine. I want to do mine. <laughs> and everyone starts leaning into the parent roles. Spence says, well, Murphy, you don't have time. You don't have time to do it. But I don't want to do her story. And then, then we have Avery who says, now, don't be stubborn, dear. And Jim says, listen to your mother. 
I love that he goes, listen to your mother now. Listen to your mother now. And everyone's just playing the parent. And she says, well, and eventually Miles says, I, I hate to pull rank. Do you want to be on television this week? I love it. <laughs> it's so cute. I'm such a sucker for this kind of comedy. I love it. Do you want to be on the television this week? She says, eventually says, fine, I'll do it. And I'll, if you tell me, do it. But I don't have to like it. And then we cut to Phil's. <laughs> Murphy is sitting, eating, still wearing the clothes her mother picked out for her. Uh, complaining, her hair is down, though. Her hair is down. Complaining about the size of her food. And Phil is worried that she's doing with food what she did with drinking. <laughs> It's true, though. Yeah. And he thinks it's because her mother's in town. And he's like, how do you know that my mother is in town? And, and Phil says, well, she already came in. She found six ways to increase the efficiency of the staff and kicked out a drunk. <laughs> Damn good-looking woman, too. She's got good calves. Got good calves. That's my favorite. <laughs> I love that everyone's like, she's amazing. Yep, everyone's and, like, she's uh, great. So then Frank comes in, uh, asks if she's going to be hiding, you know, all through dinner. She says she's been hiding. He asks what's wrong, which is so sincere. I mm-hmm. went, man, Frank. And, and she goes, this is so absurd. I'm an adult woman, an accomplished woman. My mother comes to visit me and I'm instantly reduced to an eight-year-old. I feel stupid and little and all furniture looks bigger than it is. I love that line. I love that line so much because it's so real. Oh, it's so real. It's funny and it's real. And Just, that, that's it's so it's so it's such basic speak. It's 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 not being flowery, it's not being anything. I feel stupid and little. And it's ugh. And the visual of all the furniture looks bigger than it is mm. is so beautiful. And still it's a funny line. Yep. You know, Frank says he has to admit that Avery's a pretty amazing woman. And Murphy's like, she even looks good in hats, Frank. How do you compete with that? <laughs> and Frank is, it's always amazing how Frank is so helpful to other people, except for himself. Yep. Everything he mm-hmm. says, I'm like, you you are Frank. terrible at this, Frank. Stop wearing the toupee, Frank. You have to, he, he feels that Murphy needs to stop trying to please his parents. That five years ago, he, he stopped. You know, he brought them a condo in Boca Raton. Two weeks later, there was a hurricane. It's his fault. He's like, he can't win. But then, obviously, Frank also has some issues because he starts eating. Mm-hmm. Uh, Murphy still wants to know why um, her mother's here. And she decides it's because her mother, uh, she's adopted. She's coming. Yep. Like, look at, the, look at the two of them yeah. in this picture, clearly. By the way, there's a press pass in her wallet, which I noticed the last time I watched. Mm-hmm. That's a really good detail. Mm-hmm. And then Frank just thinks that she's crazy. Says you are one donut short of a dozen. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> uh, but she she wants a closer relationship with her mother, you know, and, and she admits is that Murphy in her adult life, the two of them, she and her mother have never admitted that they loved each other out loud. And she goes, I tried once, but well, I love that. I love that it's something that we as the audience have to figure out ourselves because it's very human to not finish the thought because mm-hmm. it's too private. It just so much says within that line. I love that line. Mm-hmm. And then she decides that she'll invite her to the show. She'll be on her own turf. You know, she'll see her in action. Frank, you just think she needs to stop trying to please her mother so much. Uh, that line. So we go to show night. Murphy's wearing a red orangey jacket with slits down the side. It's this long orange red jacket. It's great. Yeah. Uh, we quirky Jim Frank, Miles, around a desk. Her mother's just walked away. You know, they all feel that Avery's having a good time. And, and Murphy feels more like herself because her mother's on her own turf. Uh, everyone's being supportive. Frank's toupee is on point. It's usually on it point, is, yeah. yeah. And, but Corky feels that she's a really dear, sweet woman, Avery, and she really deserves grandchildren. Which all 40-year-old women like to hear. Yeah. Murphy and Miles talk about the copy, this sort of powwow, sort of about the interview, how to make it personal. And Avery thinks that they he should ask him about when his daughter flew to Europe and how he sat by the phone and chewed his nails the whole time until she lands safely. I love that Miles, before he talks to her, says, 
just don't ask me how the picture goes through the air and into the television. I still don't get it. Yeah, that's pretty funny. <laughs> it's so good. Murphy doesn't like it. They sort of argue about, you know, what they think is, um, or really just a discussion, but it's irritating to Murphy about what Avery thinks that she should ask in her interview and what Murphy thinks. Mm-hmm. And then Murphy just has a whole tirade in front of her mother. Oh, it's amazing. Should I do the whole thing? Oh, please do. Okay. Why did you make me wear those hats? I hated those hats. I hated every single one of them. And you know which one I hated the most? The beret. That's right. Remember what I told you? Shelly Horn stole it out of my locker? Well, she didn't. I tied it to the back of my bike and dragged it half a mile past the Kramer's German Shepherd who'd shoot it up into a million woolly little pieces while I watched and laughed like this. Ha! (laughs) Sorry, that was really loud. She And everyone is just sort of watching as she keeps laughing. And then she goes, well, enjoy the show, Mother. I also want to talk quickly about their outfits. So we have, and, you know, granted, resolution could alter this slightly, but the main point I'm making is, uh, when you look at it, we've got Murphy in an orange, and we've got Avery in a blue. And this is something that's done very often with sports teams, Hmm. um, is the use of complementary colors to excite your eye. Interesting. So complementary colors are ones that are on the opposite side of the color wheel. So you have purple and yellow like my beloved minnesota vikings you have green and red like christmas um and then you have blue and orange and you can see that in the the knicks logo and the mets and all these sports teams the florida gators all this kind of stuff and the psychology behind it is that looking at complementary colors cause your eyes to vibrate with energy so as you're looking, it, it gives you an excitement and a drama as you're looking at it. It keeps your eyes interested. Interesting. And what I love is that there are these two opposing teams basically going up against each other. And those colors are not supposed to go together. Any complementary colors that go together turn into brown. Yeah. So you want to make brown and you, cl- you put them together, you take your complementary colors. So those two are in opposition and they're not supposed to be put together. Brilliant. In this moment. And visually, it made me so happy to see that happen. Well, really quickly, before we go into the next section, I just want to say what Colleen talked about Barnett mm-hmm. in her... Uh, there's such amazing things. We're probably not going to get to everything. But is uh, she says about Barnett, she says, Barnett knows his actors and their characters. He instinctually understands the individual strength and easy comic mannerisms of each actor. He recognizes when one of us gets into trouble and to get out, falls into shtick, just going for the laugh. Successful comedy must be played absolutely straight, and with great truth. Hmm. I mean, that's what we want from a director. I know, right? That's what we all say we want. Mm-hmm. No, she she speaks so highly of everyone involved. She says they're like a well-run theater company, and particularly points out Candace. It's a as, huge compliment from her. Yeah, and, Cand- and she points out Candace as the head of it, almost as if to say, you know, not she says this, but, you know, fish stinks from the head kind mm-hmm. of a thing, that she sets the the tone and is so open to everyone you guys should read her biography mm-hmm. it's it's brilliant it was also it's a biography slash autobiography it was she co-wrote it with somebody and they finished it after her death yeah so it is a lot of it's from her words it's not just somebody writing about her and taking excerpts it's from her yeah she said she loved murphy for its class innovation and particularly its recognition of where many women are today mm-hmm. and she appreciated that murphy had insecurities which is a scene we're gonna get to and then eventually all, some of those insecurities are also colleen's insecurities mm-hmm. which and we'll talk about person's insecurities yeah pretty much so we come to the what is clearly the evening after the broadcast and the fallout. And we see Avery at night out of her coif. Her hair is down. She's in a robe and her pajamas. And she's downstairs, much like where we saw Murphy in the very first episode next to the music, turning on the music. Mm-hmm. 
So something I think really interesting that I noticed this time around is that robe. Mm-hmm. Does that stand out to you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this is a very 70s, early 80s robe. And what I love about it is that it's a choice, I think, because it's something that Avery, being older, yep. would have. And I, I went to see a photography exhibit at the Met, the William Wegman and California Conceptualism exhibit. Mm-hmm. And they had someone wearing this robe, and I went, oh, that's a 70s robe. Like, it, like loud, mm-hmm. almost. And I went, wait a second, that's Avery's robe. And then I realized Gilda Radner and Jane Curtin wear that robe mm-hmm. on SNL, and it's a very specific time period that yep. she probably got that robe, and it's been her robe forever. Yep. And I just appreciate that detail so much. I remember that style of robe on my grandma and that kind of stuff. Like I, I remember mm-hmm. it very vividly. Um, so she starts playing a lovely song called "I've Got a Right to Sing the Blues." Um, this one is the one performed by Billie Holiday. You may have heard of her. Um, it's it was the music by Harold Arlen, and the lyrics by Ted Kaler. Ted Kaler, uh, published in 1932. Most people would know the song by Billie Holiday's version, but it was actually first sung by Ethel Merman. Yeah, that's someone so I'm a big fan of as a belter. So she turns it on and she's kind of you know swaying with this music, and it's very reminiscent of seeing Murphy in in the pilot episode swaying to some Aretha. So she's walking toward the the couch. We see the lovely little FYI pillow that's sitting there. She picks up a magazine and as she's swaying back and forth a little more, flipping through it, and then eventually her humming turns into her pronouncing the word river. And she's holding these R's in her mouth that make me so happy. It's so a stage person's voice. And she starts articulating more of the song, a certain man in this dragging my poor heart around. And then she leaps up in this slow, dramatic, performative way as she's saying misery. She keeps putting in these glottal stops at the end of things and turning every Y and R into a yeah at the end of things. And she, at this moment, Murphy peeks her head around upstairs to see what's going on as her mother is starting to rise and enjoy this beautiful song. And as Col- as Colleen, as Avery turns toward the mantle, then you see Murphy drop down and start scurrying, crawling across behind the upper the upper banister to get down toward the stairs. As Avery makes her way over during this, what is becoming a very dramatic performance of this song, and reaches up and grabs what is clearly a fake flower out of a flower arrangement and tucks it behind her hair. It's a gardenia. Yeah, yeah, it's Billie Holiday's. That's what was, yeah. yeah. Yes, it's Billie Holiday's signature flower that she would have behind her ear. And so she puts it behind her ear, and at this point, Murphy is crawling down the stairs and doing the very childlike thing of peering through the banister uh, posts. And then we have this great, like, river. It's just delicious. She's chewing it. It's amazing. Really good impression, by the way. Thank you. I watched it a lot. And what they do that's just a very simple, brilliant thing to allow Murphy to have this way down is that we have Avery so into the music and her flower in her hair that she has her eyes closed. So as she's facing that direction, she doesn't see that Murphy is there. And as she turns away, she just opens her eyes because that's what the, you just believe that she didn't see this happening. Yeah. And not because we have to believe in the magic of filmmaking. And she does this big, like all caps, got a right to sing the blues. And she does this yo ho 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 at the end as everyone, her, the, like the gardenia falls out of her hair. She's so into it. And the audience starts applauding and mm-hmm. Murphy applauds with them. And it's one of those great moments where the audience and the actors are in the same place. Yeah. And I do love when she takes the gardenia, the audience goes crazy. Yeah. Because they know what they, she's doing. Exactly. Yeah. And then 
Avery finally, as the character hears Murphy applauding and sees her and covers her face and says this great line of, you little stinker, you've been sneaking around after me since you were a kid and you're still doing it. It's the first real sort of human moment, not I'm your mom or Mm -hmm. I'm in public moment. Yeah. Obviously the singing is, but that line particularly, the way she says you've been sneaking around ever since you were a kid, it just feels like she's like, oh, I'm just tired. Well, and also it's... The singing and everything was her by herself being mm-hmm. free and vulnerable. This yeah. is the first thing we've seen with her daughter. And it, the you little stinker makes me, my my mom is not a pet name person, mm-hmm. but she used to always call me Squirt. Oh. It was this random little pet name that she had for me. And that's what made me think of you little stinker kind of thing. And Murphy is living for this and says she knows for one thing she's definitely not adopted. <laughs> and saying this is a sight of you I've never seen before. And what I love is that then she does this thing where she kind of mockingly mocks her moves and Avery goes to smack at her and they have this little giggle fest. Yeah. That they, makes me so, it's like the, they bond. Yeah. And the, it's like the tension is released. It reminded me of sitting down in Italy when I was studying there. My mom came to visit me and we had these great lunches in the middle of these piazzas in Italy and having these great moments of the first time that you get to kind of laugh with your mom as an adult and you get to have a, a connection as as adults together who you're on the same page about what you're talking about. And that's what that moment did for me. This, this, this episode reminds me a lot of my relationship with my mother, where my, my dad was the very like emotional, the one that all my friends' moms were the ones who were embarrassing them by crying at Disney movies. That was my dad. My mom is somebody that I talked to about politics and I formed opinions about that. And we talked about essays and, and uh, human rights and, human interest stories and all this kind of stuff. So I had um, having those moments where you get to bond as, as people together, having those moments when I was in Italy with my mother meant so much to me. And that's what this reminds me of. That's um, sweet. Murphy says, we haven't laughed like that in a long time. And Avery says, I wish it could happen more often to which then we get into this scene that I love so much that I just want to frame the pages. It's, written mm. like a play it's so beautiful it's so beautiful and the the way these two actresses play it it's so simple and real and very genuine and she says mother why are you here and she says she kind of stumbles at the beginning and eventually says you're the only child i've got and i thought it was about time we learned to be mother and daughter i i love the way she says it too well you're the only child i've got she does she goes i just i thought and then she goes well, you're the only child I've got. And she just, it's that thing of settling into that voice. Yeah, there's so much weight under that and emotion under that. She oh. breathes out and then she's just in her alto and it is also, be, and we'll talk about Colleen in a minute, but mm-hmm. that that throaty voice that she has, like when she knows how to use it and she's got that rasp and that, that depth to her voice that it really just sends it home and into your gut. To which Murphy says she doesn't know how to be her daughter. Because I don't know how to be perfect. I've been trying for 40 years and I just don't seem to be getting anywhere. Mm. There's so much... There's a lot of very careful pain in this scene where they're sharing a lot of stuff with, but without overloading the other person with it. But it's so honest in a way that you don't need to do much. These words are doing everything. And like they say about saying, I love you later, just saying these words is enough. It There's these two actors and what Barnett did with them just bring out the simplicity of honesty in this moment and it really sings to me and I just love it so much the other line that really gets me is uh, in here I have all the secrets oh gosh yes yes we will oh oh the way she taps her sternum oh god Mm. just gets me 
Um, because she says, well, if there's anybody who isn't perfect, it's me. Oh, I've done a lot of things in my life, but if you compare them to having a child, they don't mean very much. And she says, you're my great achievement. Mm. But somewhere long ago, I lost you and I never got you back. That one is also very resonant because that's a common thing that happens between parents. Mm -hmm. You grow up and then you separate and you don't necessarily see your parent as an adult. Mm. And then this relationship is strayed and Mm -hmm. then for whatever reason, and you know, they were your child and you were very close, but Mm -hmm. then they're no longer your child anymore. Mm -hmm. And something sometimes happens. It's It's that same thing of what we have as children, seeing our parents as humans. Mm Mm-hmm being able to see the flaw, which is what's happening in this conversation because she's seen her mother as perfect and who expects the same out of her and she finds out that her mother the way she says after she says and I never got you back and she goes "Mm mmm surprised the way she sees where she takes in Murphy's reaction to that this is a a conversation they have never had never had she says mother admitting to failure and you see like the pain that this woman had of trying to be and she says but I'll tell you something pokes chest and her voice gets even huskier Mm. Here, in here, I know all the secrets. And what I love is that Murphy says, tell me one. Yeah. And says, I never wanted to have a birthday party. You know why? Because I was afraid no one would come. Tell you another one. I'm terrified to walk into a room full of strangers because I'm sure no one will want to talk to me. And, oh. And that's something that Colleen talks Colleen about in her talks book. She was very shy as a child. And coming to the set of Murphy Brown and not knowing anyone was terrifying to her. Mm-hmm. And she's always surprised to find out later when Candace said, oh, we were we were afraid of you, mm-hmm. that, that she comes across as being sort of very strong and calm and collected when inside she isn't, which is mm-hmm. also very human. Mm-hmm. So this scene, after reading, rereading, because I'd read her biography, but mm-hmm. I'd forgotten most of this, and then watching it again, there's so much more resonance to the scene to me of the underpinnings, mm-hmm. even though it's... Colleen really is an amazing actress. She doesn't have to actually have to, but feel those emotions. She was given a gift of a lot of honest things. Then Murphy says, I'll tell you one of mine. And this part gets me. I've never said I love you because I'm afraid no one will say it back. And they both just look at each other and Avery says, why don't you try? I love you. I love you. And they hug. Mm -hmm. And I wrote, and then I cry. And then we get gifted for for being there, for experiencing this moment, we get gifted with one of those huge calling do her smiles that co- just completely cracks and changes her face. And it just, oh, I love it. And she's like, do you want to make praline cookies? Let's go into the kitchen and bake some. And they do the same thing they did earlier with the hot chocolate. We're like, do you know how to make hot chocolate? Do you know how to make hot chocolate? Where's the Eloise when we need her? And so, do you know how to bake praline cookies? No, do you? Want to be brave? Let's go. Which, that line didn't get me as a kid Mm. that's the crux Mm -hmm. of the episode Mm -hmm. they felt brave Mm -hmm. and they just went for it and now their relationship is better because of it yes like that that kind of honesty with somebody especially with a parent and a child or people who have been estranged that is bravery and that's what this is this entire episode has been about is about being brave but that's such great writing them putting the bravery onto baking praline cookies out of that moment it's just it's such a beautiful bow and you think the episode's over Mm. and Eldon comes around the corner and I wrote Eldon is me and he is just sobbing and he has all the tears and he's sniffling and he just makes his way in and grabs the phone and dials in he's like hello mom (laughs) it's Ann Mira Mira. so as we wrap up this episode wanted to give some quality time to Colleen Dewhurst so I wanted to start by reading a couple 
descriptions of her in print. Nice. First and foremost, she was known as the Queen of Off-Broadway. She was especially known for a fiery and formidable stamp on a number of Eugene O'Neill's heroines. In her autobiography, she actually said, I had moved so quickly from one Off-Broadway production to the next that I was known at one point as the Queen of Off-Broadway. But rather, because most of the plays I was in closed after a run of anywhere from one one night to two weeks, I would then move immediately into another one. So she didn't think she was deserving, but... Physically, as we were kind of talking, hinting to earlier, one place describes her as tall, luminous, and leonine. The legendary Colleen Dewhurst must go down as one of theater's finest contemporary tra- tragedians of the late 1900s, with trademark dusky tones and a majestically careworn appearance. Another described her as an imposing presence both in person and on stage. Ms. Dewhurst was known as a woman never hesitant to use her distinctive, big, throaty voice to express an opinion on almost any subject. In the theater, she conveyed a mature sexuality, a folkish earthiness. Her feline smile, crinkly eyes, and high cheekbones combined to soften her large stature and enable the audience to feel closer to her and to identify with her characters, who are often tragic. Which is so... She is such a specific physical being. And what's funny is everyone talks about how how imposing she was. She was only 5'8". I mean, that's tall for the time, but quickly, though... Colleen Dewhurst, um, Colleen Rose Dewhurst. So she was born in Montreal on June 3rd, 1924, to her father, Fred Dewhurst, a hockey player and football player, and her mother, Frances Dewhurst of the Fs. This is something that we'll tie in later. She spent her first two years chronically ill and was dragged by her mother to dozens of doctors, both accredited and dubious. The resulting emotional trauma is what drove Frances Dewhurst to embrace Christian science and reject medicine in its entirety. Mm. So, eventually, Colleen will also embrace Christian science, um, which is not to be confused with Scientology. Mm-hmm. It's its own uh, belief structure. Um, does follow a specific book. Um, however, the the main thing that most people know it for is that they believe that illness and injury can only be cured by prayer, and no science can fix it. So they they completely denounce medicine. So her family left Canada when she was a child. They moved first to Boston, later Milwaukee. Um, There's a great interview. If you look up uh, the Spotlight series, uh, Ed Wilson's interviews, Um, he interviewed her and she's just wonderful. And her giggle is my favorite thing. When she laughs, I just love it. And she says she feels guilty because when she was younger, she hated speaking in public. She didn't want people to pay attention to her. And she wanted to be an aviatrix. And her parents were like, okay, well, go see, go, go find out what that means and see if you still want to do it. And she changed her mind. She attended the Academy of Dramatic Arts for two years, and she studied privately with Joseph Anthony and Harold Clerman. We could talk about her theater work forever, because mm-hmm. um, she did everything. Yeah. And we have two other episodes with her, and so we can we, talk about her so work. So we will talk about more of those things. But um, I will talk about two in particular. The first being, and these are all later in her career, actually. Like She was doing theater for decades if you again if you look at her imdb it's not nearly as long as you would think yeah. based on everything she, she helped done. with joseph papp to start shakespeare in the park exactly on a flatbed truck in, in sure central did. park it's amazing however she was very famous for performing as uh cat in taming of the shrew where she also performed opposite her very tumultuous lover george c scott who she left her first husband for you might know him as general s Patton from Patton, mm-hmm. uh, but also a very lauded performer uh they were basically the um 
the Liz and Dick of, of the theater world. I feel like they were. Especially turbulent as all the partnerships that they tend to play. They separated in 1963, divorced in 1965 due to his infidelity, and then two years later they were back together. They appeared in last The Last Run, and they parted ways again because he took up with another actress from that movie. They did have two sons together, and they remained amicable. Uh, much like Liz and Dick, it sounds like. They kind of understood who they were. So the first thing that I knew Colleen Dewhurst from, and probably many people from the side of the pond knew her from, is as Marilla Cuthbert in the Anne of Green Gables miniseries in, in Canada for Sullivan TV. Uh, it was Kevin Sullivan's very, very beloved adaptation. They actually did three miniseries of it. They did Anne of Green Gables, the sequel, as well as the continuing story, which happened after her death. And they honor her in that and it's very sweet oh. she also continued her role in the mini movie of Anne of Avonlea in 87 and she was in the series Avonlea until she suddenly died with the same character in a recurring format what I love is that they they wrote in a death scene to honor the fact that she passed because they couldn't plan for it and her her work as Marilla and as Avery were very impactful in my childhood there's something about when she starts giggling with that raspy raspy voice and the way she's but it's it's a fa- it's a smile you don't see coming because she looks so formidable but she's so warm when she does and it just marilla was so important to me growing up my dad and i were obsessed with Anne green gables and i just loved her in this she not long after these things then appeared as avery so she had a 45 year acting career she died at 67. So, like, think about uh, the amount of her life that she spent doing this. She won the 1974 Sarah Siddons Award for Chicago Theater, two Tony Awards, two Obie Awards, two Gemini Awards. In 1989, she won the Genie Award for Best Performance by an Actress in a Supporting Role for Hitting Home. And she had 13 Emmy Award nominations and won four. She was also inducted into the American Theater Hall of Fame in 1981. Uh, one of the things that I loved about her was uh, when I was going back through and rereading these things was that she was um, greatly known for her generosity and humane regard for others. She was the president of Actors' Equity. And one of my favorite stories about her was that as president of Equity, she got into a huge union dispute with the producer Cameron McIntosh over whether Jonathan Price should be allowed to perform the role of a Eurasian pimp that he created in the London production of Miss Saigon when the show opened on Broadway. And the union, with her at the lead, first barred him and then reversed its decision, and he went on to win the Tony Award that year as Best Actor in a Musical. In announcing the ban on Mr. Price and her support for the union's declaration that it was inappropriate in 1990 for a Caucasian actor to play Eurasian, Ms. Dewhurst said, it is not censorship because it wouldn't have been censor- censoring for us to ask for the stopping of a minstrel, st- minstrel show. And she was widely criticized for this statement and her stand, but there were also many who supported her. And I just think right now as we talk about representation and the actual people being represented, that wasn't that long ago. That was 1990. Yeah. And even though I sometimes think 97 was just around the corner, it's still 1990 is not that long ago and we're still talking about these things and the fact that in 1990 a man won a tony award playing a eurasian man is something we should think about just saying and i love the fact that she stood by this choice um so unfortunately we we do need to speak about her death she in 1989 she was diagnosed with cervical cancer Um, But her fervent Christian science beliefs led her to refuse any kind of surgical treatment that could have potentially saved her life. And I want to 
I want to stop here and say that we are here to respect beliefs and not judge beliefs. Um, we also don't have any documentation that any surgery would have saved her life. We don't know how far along it was, anything like that. You may hear that she chose not to get treatment and potentially want to pass judgment on a on a religious belief. I would I would caution to um, think empathetically with these choices um, rather than say, oh, what a waste or something like that, which um, I definitely find myself wanting to feel, but I, I do respect others' choices, and we don't know if that would have changed anything. Um, friends close to the actress would later maintain that Dewhurst's refusal to undergo invasive surgery to remove the cancer had as much to do with her innate modesty as with her deeply felt belief in the healing powers of her religion. So she died in on August 22nd, 1991 at 67 in South Salem, New York, at a farmhouse she shared with her companion, her partner, uh, producer uh, Ken Marsalis, that they'd been together since 1974. In October of that year, George C. Scott starred in and directed a production of On Borrowed Time, and he dedicated the show to her. Mm. And I just think that's beautiful that they had this this co-parenting relationship and still trusted and supported each other, regardless of what had happened. One of my favorite quotes I found about her was from Maureen Stapleton, another lauded actress. And she said, Colleen looked like a warrior, so people assumed she was the Earth Mother. But in real life, Colleen was not to be let out without a keeper. She couldn't stop herself from taking care of people, which she did then with more care than she took care of herself. Her generosity of spirit was overwhelming and her smile so dazzling that you couldn't pull the fucking reins on her even if you desperately wanted to and knew damn well that somebody should. Damn. Dang it, Maureen. That's really well said. <laughs> now, I only knew first Colleen from this. Mm-hmm. And then being a fan of theater actors then found out about her amazing history. And um, I'm going to save uh, her last episode, my story of when I found out she passed. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm so happy to hear the story from you because I know how much she meant to mm-hmm. you. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I am obviously in no way her family, um, but Colleen was the first death from a famous person that I knew and I was pretty young when she died, but I knew who she was, and I, 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 she'd affected me in such a way that when I found out she died, that was the first time I really thought, like, oh, those people that I see can die just like anybody else. She's a, she was just a class act and a lovely person, and people were so happy to work with her, and I'm so happy that we got the wealth of her talent that we did. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just to maybe change the tone a bit, mm-hmm. since we're all a little sad, um, there's some really interesting stuff in her biography, as you've mentioned. And um, something that's sort of fascinating is that they offered the part to Colleen. She didn't know what the part was. She never read. They didn't have anything written yet. Well, of course they didn't, because yeah. they were they were not ready yet. Is it? Um, I know you, you have it in front of you. I'm yeah. just trying to remember if what I read was correct, that they offered her a role before they knew it was her mother i i don't know I, because they called her that day so i thought they then told her that she's playing they did yes yeah. you are correct yeah it's it's interesting so her she pretty much just got an offer to be on the show it's amazing and she said yes her la agent said oh they want uh diane and joel want to send you the show's reviews mm-hmm. because here's the thing that we sort of have hinted to but not really said this show was not in the top 10 the first year. It was about 35. Yeah, they they thought they were asking up. 
Yeah, asking her to do it. This is the first big A-list person who did it. So, so they're like, "Look, well, look, well, this is this is good." Yeah, it's it's a good show. <laughs> the critics really like us. Mm-hmm. I know we're only thirty-five. By the way, uh, because it is topical now, mm-hmm. what new show was number one in the eighty-eight, eighty-nine season, Jesse? I don't know. Do you want to guess? Oh God, I'm bad with years. It's no. Roseanne. Stop it. Yes. I mean, of course it was. Yeah. Yeah. It's very timely right now. The number one new show was Roseanne. It was number one. Yeah. Uh, So she accepted the offer on a Thursday, and within an hour, Diane called her to say she'd be playing Avery Brown, Murphy's Mm -hmm. mother, um, and they were just beginning to work on the script. And uh, with literally within days, she had the script, flew out to California, and sort of what we were alluding to before was that, you know, she was, was very, you know shy and insecure about going to the set the first day that she arrived 25 minutes early she's so we were talking about this before this is exactly what i do because i don't want to be late but then i end up too early and then i hide which is what she did she hid (laughs) so i told when i read that i was like oh thank you thank you for being like me so she hid, and then she sort of drove back. Yep. Like and she then, was just arriving. And then pretended like she was arriving, but then she got a little anxious because all of the spaces were had reserved for, because it's the main cast. She didn't know what to do. And then someone was like, no, no, we'll, we'll park your car for you. And um, she said from the start of rehearsals, it was very relaxed, very efficient. She felt that Barnett created a really amazing atmosphere. At one point, all the writers came to watch a run-through, and she <laughs> was like, who are they? Who are these, <laughs> who are these mystery people who've just shown up? And Candace was like, those, those, those are the writers. And she never worked on a sitcom before. Mm-hmm. And so it's obviously, as we've talked about with, with a lot of the writers in the show, it's a very different format. It's a lot of rewriting. And she said, she, what amazed me most was how the line that stopped you dead each time had been neatly excised and a new, truly brilliant bit of dialogue appeared in its place. These revisions were incorporated into the week's scripts right away through the final run-through, some just before our performance on camera before the live audience. And I love what she says. She says she woke up in the morning before the first rehearsal and put on something she thought would be the most appropriately nondescript. (laughs) Just love that line. Please follow us on social media. Yes, everything is Murphy Brown Pod. That's the Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Our email is murphybrownpod at gmail. Oh, we have a Spotify playlist, Murphy Brown Empowerment Playlist. And there's a link to it on our website. There is. And thank you so much for the the reviews and mm. the, the interaction that we've already received. They mean so much to us, seriously. And honestly, if you want a, a free way to support the podcast, please go on iTunes and, and rate it. You know, we always prefer a five star, but please be honest. And uh, we we love hearing from you guys. It means the world to us. Yeah, and uh, it really helps the podcast get out there more. So because this episode is so important to us and so jam-packed, we're going to save a revival talk mm-hmm. for the upfronts, as we mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, stay tuned, most likely Thursday. Since Thursday is now a Murphy Brown Day. hey And we'll explain more about it if for some reason you aren't aware. Yes. Uh, it is upfront time in the city. Yes. And happy belated Mother's Day for our, our Mama Said episode. And our next episode will be season one, episode 16, Moscow on the Potomac. And we'll see you next week for another edition of FYI. The Murphy Brown Podcast. Bye.